Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's show, Gabby was talking. Oh, hang on a second, Gabby. My name's Goose. My name's Gabby. Hey, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I was going to throw to you. I was like, on today's show, what are we talking about, Gabby? We that was where about, I was going. We talk about risk. We talk about risk. <laughs> we talk about risk. How to price risk in your property portfolio. Very interesting mm. discussion. Mm. Yeah, because I think like we dig into it, right? But it's a lot of deciding how comfortable you are with risk and what actual cost there is to risk versus the potential upside of that risk. And really considering it as just a part of your journey as an investor, right? There is going to be risks that you need to make decisions about how comfortable you are um, and applying that to your situation and strategy. So. Mm. 100%. Yeah. So we talk about, you know, buying one property versus two properties versus six properties. And how would you think about that decision and what the financial implications are, what the emotional implications are, um, how to think about diversification, how to think about, um, you know, portfolio strategy and portfolio theory and asset allocation and all kinds of different stuff. So I think it's a super interesting episode. Um, maybe a little nerdy for some, but I think it's really a, a very interesting topic that a lot of people need to be thinking about. Rather, so rather than focusing on short-term expenses, they should be thinking about long-term risk profile. That's the kind of general thesis. Um, without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it, Gabby. And make sure that you share, rate, review, do all the good stuff. Um, let us know what you think about this episode. We'll see you on the inside. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Investor Lab. You're with your pals, Goose and Gabby. What's going on, Gabby? Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. Great. I'm in, I'm in our house alone and it's so quiet and beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, so the guy. Not the, that I, not that I don't love your sultry tones, but um, sometimes no, it's nice. I think, gonna, I think everyone's got a limit, right? Everyone's got a limit. <laughs> it's quite, it was quite funny. I went to, um, I went to the the cafe near the office, um, just this morning to get a little, get a little morning brew, a little, 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 little cheeky, little cheeky black coffee. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he was saying he's like, "Where's Gabby?" He's seeing <laughs> Gabby, and I was like, "Well, here's the thing." Gabby's got the whole place to herself now. She doesn't have to listen to me all day. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Can recommend if you can kick if you can kick your partner out of your house but still stay together, do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, end episode. <laughs> right, yeah. So that's the tip for today, guys. Hey guys Get, have um, a good week. Bye. Make sure you have separate places to hang out. No, no, it's <laughs> good. Look, what are we talking about today? We I, I want to make I want to make this episode a punchy, impactful, yep. maybe a little shorter one today, just because we've got a lot going on. But yeah. I want it. I think this is a wicked big issue. I think this is a. Now, um, big. It, it's it's like it's, it's psycho how good this topic is i reckon <laughs> i feel like you need to introduce the topic <laughs> what okay. are we talking about today goose so um for those of you listening to the podcast you may know that i have a slightly analytical bent i like to mm. i like to think about complex problems uh, and really start to pull all off the apart. time. Every all complex the problems time. a lot of the time. And so the problem I've been thinking about lately is how to price risk. I think the problem is most most investors aren't thinking enough about risk management and diversification, and they focus too much on short term costs without pricing mm. in risk. It's a really mm. interesting discussion to have, I think. Um, and part of the part of the, the thinking that's led me to this point is I've been doing a lot of. Um, study recently on things like modern portfolio theory, um, credit risk analysis, um, 
you know, just loads of really interesting kind of like uh, mathematical sciences kind of basis mm. stuff. And it's really, Sexy. really. Yeah, I know, right? I'm really, <laughs> really getting you down, I'm sure, right? Let's talk about, let's talk about the nerdy stuff. Um, but, it's, but it's really, like, it's really interesting, right? Just at very, super high level. If you were going to invest in something, right? If you had $100 to invest and you could buy $101 things, right? That are completely unrelated to each other versus one $100 thing, which would you choose and why? That's the, that's the, that's the most simple part of the thesis, right? Uh-huh. Um, and that's, now it's going to depend on a bunch of stuff. It's going to depend on costs, returns, heaps of different things. But I think, um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting, I was on a webinar last night and I actually started talking about this on a webinar last night as well. And like pricing in, pricing in, Pricing in uh, risk, basically, or pricing pricing in the value of diversification is another mm. way is another way to think about it. So you can tell this is going to be in a situation where I'll just keep waffling. So what do you think about that so far? Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting conversation, right? Because yeah. I think particularly like at the moment, there's people who might be fortunate enough to be in a position where they've got quite a bit of borrowing capacity, and they're like, right, this is my time. I'm going to go let loose. Yeah, and they're trying to think about what makes more sense, A, for me, based on my situation, but also just logically as an investor, what makes more sense? Do I just go and buy, you know, taking a taking PPR out of the equation, you're going to buy investment properties. Mm. Do I go and buy one, let's say $600,000 asset? Do I go and do that? Or do I go and buy two and maybe get two mm. either different kinds of assets or just in different locations? Or do I go three or do I go six at 100,000, which would be a bit of a stretch, but that's kind of the idea. Yeah, yeah, I think totally. people, yeah, people go. Or even going wacko and going, do you get, do you get one at 1.2 million or, you know, like there's all these different kind of considerations, but yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's a really frequent question that I think comes up for people where it's like, do I, what is better? Do I get one or do I get two? That's probably the most frequent do I get one or do I get two? I yeah, say. so this there's be, like better is a really interesting term, right? Because what is better? Yes, like, better is subjective. Better is so subjective, right? Yeah. And there's a few things that come into that decision. Like, should I buy one, two, four, ten? You know, like this is and this is the thinking, right? Because and at what point do you have a diminishing return? So at what point are you overexposed with risk? And at what point do you have a diminishing return? And there's a few things that come into it. So number one is transaction costs, right? So just just for the point of this discussion, and this is in absolutely in no way trying to imply what you should do in terms of LVRs or anything like that specifically, but just for the maths, just for the demonstration example, purposes. just for the demonstration purposes, if we if we just use ninety percent LVR just for the example, that's that's all it is, and it's not an implication that you need to do that, right? But let's just say it's, we use ninety percent LVR as the example, right? Um, to buy one six hundred thousand dollar property, it's going to cost you roughly. Um, one hundred and six thousand dollars. That's including paying for, you know, if you worked with Dashdot, they would cover our fees. They would cover conveyancing, building and pest inspections, um, mm-hmm. stamp duty. Uh, you know, the whole shoot and match, right? It conveyance. Did I say conveyancing? Everything, right? So yep. we're talking about all the costs to buy the property, not just the conveyancing. Deposit. Yeah, this, did we say conveyancing? Let's talk about <laughs> yes. conveyancing. So, um, so all of the costs, right? So we're talking about all of the cash required to buy the property, right? It's going yep. to cost you on a $600,000 property, round about $106,000, thereabouts, right? Six, which is roughly 
18%. Roughly 18%. Yeah. If you were to buy two $300,000 properties, right? So the total asset value is still 600000 mm-hmm. It is going to cost you about $124,000 thereabouts. Yeah, which is roughly 21%. Exactly. If you were to buy six $100,000 properties and really try and spread your risk around, again, you're still going to have $600,000 worth of real estate, but that's going to cost you about $210,000. Which right? is, quick math, 35%. Yeah, so it's it's creeping up. Yeah, totally, right? So, so you've kind of got this situation where a lot of people are thinking about their short-term, ooh, but it costs me more to buy two properties. Now, yeah. the, a, a more realistic scenario, so we can use the six times $100,000 properties as a kind of like an outlier example to show what happens on an extreme end of the spectrum. But, but I like a, a fairly a fairly common consideration for people is do I buy one $600,000 investment property or do I buy two $300,000 investment properties? Which would I choose and why? Now, um, we're not going to get into the considerations of like specifically how much cash do you have because that would factor into the decision, but just let's look at the high-level maths on the 600 versus 300. Um because that's a really, it's a really fair consideration to make. Now, in a six hundred thousand dollar example, yes, it's more cash efficient because you have fixed costs in the purchasing process, which means that you know, theoretically, the more that you spend on one individual property, the less it is going to cost you on a percentage basis to buy that property. But your risk exposure is way higher as well. So if you buy one six hundred thousand dollar property. And if that is, so let's just assume as well, you can only buy $600,000 worth of properties, right? That's it. If you buy one $600,000 property, you've got a 100% risk exposure into a single market, a single property, a single, you know, single, it's it. It's it. So your risk profile is like 100%. But if you buy two $300,000 properties, your risk profile is much less. You've actually split your risk in half. So 50, 50%, right? Mm-hmm. Assuming that you're buying in different locations and you know, there's a lot of assumptions in all of this, right? Yep. Now, the cost difference is $22,000. So, this is really interesting, right? Because when you think about, you know, over the, over the lifespan of a property, right? So, $22,000 is relatively insignificant, right? It's inconsequential. Um, so, the, the $22,000 um, is actually $11,000 on each of the $300,000 properties is essentially what your additional split would be, basically, right? Yep. So, in the grand scheme of things, $11,000 on a $300,000 property, that's going to get soaked up. You, that'll, you won't even notice that over a, over a five-year time horizon of growth and, and returns. Yeah, right? against the potential returns, yeah. Totally. So the question that you've got to ask yourself is how much, what is your risk profile and how much do you price risk? Now, a lot of people um, want to know, and I know because I talk to a lot of people, they want to <laughs> know like how you and I would approach doing things, Gabby. Like yep. they say things to me like, if you were in my position, what would you do? How would you approach this? And so I have these kind of conversations all the time where I put, and I literally, you know, I put myself in their shoes and go, well, if I was in your position, I'd do this or X, right? Now, the interesting thing is we are buying properties again now, which is really cool. And um, we know that you can go and buy six, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollar properties that are going to give crazy returns, probably some really good yields, maybe buy some unit blocks and do all of that kind of stuff. But we are choosing to buy properties that are, between three hundred and like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars, right? And we're happy to spend less. We're happy to spend. We're happy to spend on the lower end of that spectrum, and end up buying more properties, right? Hmm. Even though the purchase, the, the the cost per property is going to be higher. And yeah. so, so do you want to talk to that? 
No, I was just thinking about, I was thinking as well about um, the market for these kind of middle band properties as well. It's like if you mm. think about the type of assets as a bell curve, right, like yeah. most of, this, of, of the locations that we buy in, they're those cookie cutter foundational like assets that Australians are always going to want. They're always going to yeah. want, they're always going to have a need for as opposed to even just that asset type, like if you buy a unit block, mm. your cash flow might be amazing and if you buy it in a good growth location but yeah. there is that volatility just in the asset type as well in terms of less demand for well, maybe a unit block of one-bedroom units, you know. Totally. I mean, like a good example of that is the like the ultra premium, you know, the trophy home market or whatever, right? So, mm. yeah, I mean, there's huge potential gains there, but it's also really volatile. And the reason it's really volatile is because there aren't many buyers. Like that's the reason it's really volatile. And it's the same thing with like um, if anyone looks at a, a, a graph of like a small cap or a micro cap stock or share on the in the share market what you'll tend to find is that the graph actually has a funny shape it's quite it's usually really really square and the reason it's usually really square is because there aren't there isn't a very high trading volume so like somebody might buy and then my price might go up and then nothing will happen for a while and something else so it's really really square and angular but it, the gains can be tremendous but also quite volatile right and the reason for that is because of low trading volume. That's the that's the main reason. As you increase the yeah. trading volume or in, as you increase the exposure to the amount of people who want a specific asset or the amount of times it could trade or the total addressable market of that asset, the volatility actually starts to decrease and it starts to normal, normalize, right? Mm. And that's so that's where you then get your on the other end of the spectrum, sort of like your blue chips, you know, like your CBAs and your BHPs and all of that kind of stuff where the total returns might be lower, right? But um the risk, the risk is a lot lower as well because they're probably not going to go up, up and down all over the place, right? So, yeah, because I guess with the with that, like if you think about the luxury luxury asset mm. end of the spectrum as well, you would kind of beyond that would kind of be like commercial as well, right? Where it's yeah, more more potential returns, but also less less inherent demand for that asset. It is harder to fill that if it becomes vacant. Is the way to think about it. If you needed to sell it. Yeah. What exposure do you have in the market to buyers of that particular asset? So. Mm, yeah, totally. And this is where this is where um, this is where like portfolio theory really comes into play, right? Because what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to risk grade the assets. Now, risk is subjective, right? My my view on risk is different to your view on risk, Gabby, and it's probably going to be different to many of the listeners and all of that kind of stuff. And I have a I hate risk, right? But I, but I also I'm also quite I'm also quite tolerant to pushing my edges, so I kind yeah. of like I'm happy I'm happy with a higher level of risk as long as I don't have a high level of sens- uh, single point sensitivity. So what I, what I mean by that is I would be happier to test a few speculative edgy uh, markets. Uh, yeah, a few a few like kind of more edgy markets as long as that wasn't the only thing that we were doing. So. You know, as long as we've already kind of like hedged um, by having some really kind of safe bets as well, uh, and I, I'm 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 quite happy with with that because it's quite a, quite exciting. But it's also I would never want to just go push all the chips into the table in some like freaky little mining town or something like that, right? Um, even yeah. though the returns could be you really, might really buy fun. a yeah you might buy a two hundred thousand dollar asset in Port Augusta as opposed to go and buy a unit block in Port Augusta. Are there unit blocks in Port Augusta? There's sure. probably unit blocks in Port Augusta. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked. One. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly, <laughs> right? No, this, and that, that's an, it's a really great example, right? So I would probably be comfortable, right, knowing what I know to mm. – and this is just an example, guys. We're not trying to say go and buy in Port Augusta. We're just using this <laughs> as an example, right? Demonstration. So I would be happy to, as long as we have already got some kind of – uh, properties in areas where I think they're going to be like really stable, really good quality returns, lower, way lower risk profile. And as long as we've already got a few of them, then I'm happy for us to then start going, okay, well, let's go and buy a $150,000 property in Port Augusta and maybe something somewhere else. Now, that comes down to portfolio theory. Now, in your, in your portfolio mix and in your portfolio seasoning, you need to think about not what is the risk profile of the assets individually, plus what is the risk profile of your portfolio as a whole, right? Because if you've got... Um, if you've got 50% of your portfolio that's got a risk level of one, we'll call that really low risk, and we're 50% of your portfolio with a risk level of 10, well, then your portfolio has probably got a risk level of like five, right? All things being equal. Mm -hmm. So you, you want to not just think about what how risky is a single asset, but how risky is your portfolio? Because then you've got to think about things like risk premiums, right? So a risk premium is the investment return on, a, on an asset that is expected. Uh, sorry, a risk premium is the investment return an asset is expected to yield in excess of the risk-free rate of return. An asset's risk premium is a form of compensation for investors. It re represents payment to investors for tolerating the extra risk given in, in a given investment over that over that of a risk-free asset, right? So mm -hmm. all things being equal, something like a like a government bond, right, is really, really low risk, but it's also really low return, right? It's like, it's basically a risk-free asset, right? Because uh, it's guaranteed by the government. So unless the government fails and the country fails, right? It's pretty much a risk-free asset, but the returns are like a fraction of a percent often, right? Mm. Um, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you might have, I don't know, some, some like new wacky, you know, Shiba Inu, crypto coin or something like that where the returns could be like thousands and tens of thousands of percent but the, you know that's and that's kind of your, your risk premium right so what's the what's the return versus um, a risk-free risk-free rate of return circling back to the point you know it's kind of you, every I think every investor needs to not just think about the financial cost but actually think about how do how do I feel about risk and diversification you know, would all things being equal would I prefer to own one 1.2 million dollar property? And just cross my fingers and ride the wave and everything like that. And and look, if mm. I could, I'd I'd be shorting the Sydney market. I, I don't think the Sydney I think <laughs> Sydney market is wildly volatile, right? If I could, I'd put a short on. I'd, I'd short it. And I think and it's a really good example of people who you know I, I I've been saying for quite some time the boom in Sydney is not sustainable, right? Uh, and 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 I still stand by that. And I think it's gonna it's gonna have some challenges over the next couple of years. So. In that situation, do you want a $1.2 million exposure in a, in a region like Sydney, for example, or do, would you prefer to have four $300,000 properties spread over four different states in areas that are economically un, uncorrelated and to give yourself the, you know, all of that kind of diversification? Now, it's interesting that the correlation, right? Because what you want to try and do is you want to make sure you have uncorrelated assets because you could accidentally mm. uh, expose yourself <laughs> to a correlated risk. And just, just for example, and I'm not suggesting anyone buying mining towns or anything like that, but I'm just using this as an example. Let's say you were to buy in a, a, a town or a city in Queensland, right? And let's just say the main uh, economic profile of that area was based around iron ore, right? 
And then let's say you went and bought in Western Australia in an area and the main economic profile of that area was also iron ore. Well, yes, you've diversified. You've bought two properties. And yes, they're in two different states. Hey, so you've got geographic, but they could be exposed to the same economic drivers, right? So then you've got to think about, okay, what are you doing to diversify in a non-correlated or uncorrelated mm. way? So in that sense, it can actually make a lot of sense, right? For example, to have, I don't know, one property is this is all things being equal. Assuming you could buy the buy the properties at right prices, right? One property in Sydney because Sydney is primarily driven by things like immigration and the finance finance sector and stuff like that. Uh, one property in uh, somewhere like I don't know Rock, Rockhampton, which is driven largely by agriculture. It's the beef capital of Australia, etc. Uh, one property in uh, I don't know somewhere driven by tourism, right? One property in um, you know somewhere like somewhere that's driven by space industry there's plenty we've been finding loads of them no it's it's actually it's actually really interesting we've been discovering hits of really cool locations where um the space industry is actually a really really big underlying uh, industry driver so it's fascinating but see but the point is that you the, the point is yeah. you want to look at these geographically um economically uh all of this kind of stuff like and and you know, you don't want to just you don't want to just have a thesis where you say, I, all I do is I buy in coastal towns, right? Because of tourism or whatever. The tourism goes to shit. You're in, you, you know, your whole portfolio goes to shit. So what you want to think yeah. about is is how are you pricing in that risk, and then how are you how are you managing that risk? So I went for a waffle. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, because I think if you just think about like if you think about the one, do I buy one or do I buy two? Argument, right? If you, mm. if we say if we're going with the six hundred thousand example you know cost to buy one six hundred thousand is 100 roughly 100 106 grand yeah 106 grand versus if you bought two it would be 126 or something let's just say let's just say there's 20 grand extra costs okay entry costs on that asset um i i think a really interesting framework with risk management as well is questioning like what is the potential upside so what's the potential upside what's the potential downside and can i live with the downside Mm. and that's kind of where your individual decision making comes into place because you can figure out the math of like what are the extra costs right in this example it's twenty thousand. call it 20 grand we'll call it 20 grand yeah you can determine which is going to be the best upside for you but it really comes down to the potential downside and can you live with the downside? And I think that's why you and I have a bias towards that middle band of asset diversification. So it's not one as all eggs in one basket and it's yeah. not a few eggs in many, many baskets. Mm. It's a handful of eggs in a handful of baskets because the downside, the potential downside to all of those options, that middle band is where we sit the most comfortably because if one asset, if something happened and that market kind of turned and that particular asset didn't work, if that is one in five, we are comfortable with that risk and being able to manage that and deploy and and respond how we need to mm. versus if you might have a better upside maybe in, an, in one asset that has a higher purchase price, mm. but if that turned what is the potential downside of that can we live with the downside of that yeah that's usually the decision that you as an individual investor have to process and that's usually why people end up with those kind of spread 
diversified across different locations and people are buying like twenty one hundred thousand dollar assets very frequently as opposed to people buying maybe one two million dollar asset yeah or like between five and eight kind of four hundred three hundred thousand dollar assets like that's the most common because that's generally where people feel the most well, comfortable it, with the downside. It's got a different risk profile in the market too and you kind of touched on that earlier. Like so in that kind of like in the kind of like 250 to $600,000 price point. That's mm-hmm. a really that's a really accessible market, right? It's affordable for most people. Um, it's attractive to most people. If there's a economic disruption, people will downgrade not upgrade. Like there's all of these kind of things, right? So that's the that's the middle band where you're going to get if you think about it on a bell curve, that's where most people that's where the the opportunity is for most people. So you've got the highest concentration of potential um, buyers and all of that kind of stuff. So it, it's the le- it's the, it is actually the lowest lowest risk um, mm. band of of property assets. Yep. Um, so in in that kind of general price range. So so there's that. So that's a risk management piece in and in and all in and in and of itself, right? And interestingly, in the in the example we're using of like so one $600,000 property versus two $300,000 properties. Let's say there's a $20,000 difference, right? Essentially, what you would be saying is if you wanted to buy the two $300,000 properties is I'm prepared to pay a $10,000 premium per property to reduce my risk by 50%, right? So, Which I know to you and I, that's obvious. That's a like I would pay $10,000 to reduce my risk by half. Totally. Yeah. Totally. But it's an individual decision, right? Yeah, it's, a good, it's, it's almost insurance, yeah. you know. Like if you think about yeah. it like that, and if you and if you then wanted to just get a little bit more granular even further and say, this is going to cost me ten thousand dollars today, but over ten years, over ten years, which could be you know, if you said it's the life cycle of the property, right? It's going to cost me a thousand dollars a year to be to be fifty percent diversified, <laughs> you know, like per property, right? To be fair, right? So, that, so then does that does that then change the perspective? On, on risk? I, I mean, I think so. Like if I only had one shot to buy one property. One opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, I only had, yeah, if I only had one shot, uh, there's no way that I would want to just go buy one of anything, right? So mm. we use shares as an example in this show quite a lot and I dabble around a little bit in shares, but I don't really know what I'm doing, right? To be honest, I just like... And buy, rip- buy, sell, sell. Yeah. And so what do I do? I buy lots of stuff because I'm like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I figure if yeah. I've got exposure, I've actually, you know, it's actually worked out pretty good <laughs> to, to be honest because I've got no idea what I'm doing. Like I wouldn't know, mm. you know, and you've got to be, you got to be supremely, I was going to say you got to be supremely confident to buy one asset, but I just don't think, I just don't think that is true. Mm. I think any intellectually uh, advanced investor would not want exposure to one single asset. I think it just doesn't make sense. Like it makes makes no sense from a portfolio perspective. Yeah, it's an interesting angle as well, just from like asset selection. It's mm. like if you if you're like shares, for example, if you're just buying them through superhero on your phone, mm. there's no expertise between you and the asset selection. You're just like, yeah. ah, whatever kind of pops up and whatever I read about on mm. on in, in the news at the moment. Yeah. Um Whereas if you have that layer of expertise that you're working with someone who can actually think about your portfolio and can give you advice on asset structure and that kind of thing, you can kind of, it absorbs a little bit of the risk. Like you can be a little bit more risky. So instead of buying 20,000 different companies, you buy 
you would narrow it to be like, cool, okay, right now, based on my risk profile, these are the kind of industries that I totally comfortable investing in. I want to point out, I want to point out something else as well, because you're 100% right about the expertise bit, but then you've also Hmm. got the diminishing rate of return, right? So, 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 um, if it costs, if there's fixed costs involved in a transaction, right? And you go, okay, cool. I get, I get the concept. Let's diversify. At what point does it stop making sense? Yeah. Right. So in this scenario, if people are going, oh yeah, you know, right, you're right. It doesn't make any sense to buy a six hundred thousand dollar property. You know what? I'm going to go and only buy fifty thousand dollar properties. Right. <laughs> right. Then at what point, like, is the does that even make sense? And so just to like, like it, it starts to really not make sense at a certain point. So what you need to think about is the transaction costs yeah you need to think about the transaction costs versus the uh expected return on investment versus your risk profile and you need to kind of weigh all those things against each other so for example if you were to buy the six one hundred thousand dollar properties right it's going to cost you about two hundred and ten thousand dollars and if they grew by and if they had a static rate of return of uh, internal rate of return of ten percent a year then it would take you about three and a half years just to cover your costs right so so the the point being is you need to weigh up the a bunch of stuff the time cost of money uh, the return on capital time frame now you will get the fastest return on your money by buying one asset right because you're going to have the lowest cost per asset and all, all things being equal if they all grew at the same rate you'll have the lowest cost per asset and but you'll have 100% exposure so then you've got the risk then you got the risk reward profile it's like shit I've got 100% exposure but it might only I might get a return in I don't know, a year to a year and a half, right? I might get 100% return on my capital. Versus if you had a 50% exposure, 50% diversified, it might take you, I don't know, a year and a half to two years. I'm not, you know, so, but the the cost, the the return profile is going to be different, but the risk profile is also going to be different. So you really need to think about that and and weigh that up. I mean, in my experience and my, my view is that Usually, sort of, you you want to keep it above two hundred thousand dollars, preferably above two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Is sort of where I see the, you know, like if you if you can only get started with two hundred grand, it's better to get started because you'll be able to build a better portfolio. But I think mm. sort of in that kind of two hundred to two hundred and fifty, I think is where the grey zone is around the around the efficient use of capital and efficient distribution of funds. Um, but then, you know, inversely, I think if you go over a million bucks, you're cooking it basically. So, um, yeah. I think. Yeah, I, th- I think there's also like, like we're talking primarily about monetary risk, right? The and and monetary upside. Um, talking there about is spiritual risk and spiritual upside <laughs> as well. <laughs> Call the shaman. Um, <laughs> I was thinking more about there is also an emotional piece. Like we're trying not to attach it to this moment in time, but there's also like we can say it makes sense. Let's just say. The, the best strategy might be three $200,000 assets, whatever, based on the 600000 There's also an emotional risk and an emotional reality and of your situation of do I have the capacity as a human being to manage three purchases at this point in time as well. So there is actually an emotional and situational risk mm. overlay to trying to buy too many assets at one time because you can imagine if yeah, you, went you don't down want the, to go and do it all at once on stack on top of each other and try yeah and buy, if you yeah, went yeah. down the fifty thousand dollar asset route whatever that is six hundred thousand divide fifty thousand twelve assets if you tried to buy twelve assets today 
you just you just you wouldn't have the time or the bandwidth to no, do no, all no, the no. paperwork or the searching. You wouldn't no. And so there's a risk in there as well, right? In terms of the quantity of assets buying at a time. And this is usually it comes in with um with our clients. A lot of the briefs, the main conversation is like, do I buy one or do I buy two? Generally speaking, that's mm. the most common situation. And our general advice is probably buy two because of the diversification that we're talking through in this in this um, conversation. But it's also about buy one now, work through the process, mm. get a feel for what works, what fits into your life right now because everyone has stuff going on. Nobody's mm. just sitting around just going, I'm just buying a property. Yeah. So go through the process once, get a feel for it, and then buy the next one. We're not saying necessarily go and buy X quantity. No, you don't need to stack them all on top of each other. No. Yeah, because of that situational risk, right? There is an emotional risk of you as a human being, as an investor, as an executor of the purchases as well. So if you can build up that rhythm of what is the process and you by having that momentum, you're actually reducing the risk. Yeah. And you're usually increasing your confidence to take on more risky um, asset selection, different location mm. selection as well. So there's that factor of risk to think about as well. Totally, totally. It's a good conversation. I'm mindful of time. Um, it's a really, it's a really good conversation that we're having that I, th- I hope people take on. And just to be clear, it's not as simple. It isn't as simple as just saying, should I, should I buy one or buy two, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you only have the capacity to buy one property at $300,000, it may not make sense to split that in half and say, well, I'm going to buy two at $150,000. So there are thresholds that you should be thinking about passing and overcoming. And I think $300,000 is a pretty good target, right? So two to $300,000. The question is, if you can buy, if, you know, as you start to have the ability to buy more, then how do you think about diversification? So there's different ways that we need to think about it. And of course, you know, if you need some guidance and advice on that, you can reach out to our team and literally... Get, get free guidance, free advice, free yeah. consultation. Just go to dash.com.au forward slash discovery. You book a call, speak to the team. They'll give you some guidance on what the best next step is. They'll help you to then, if it makes sense to progress and speak to one of our advisors who can then guide you on what the what that kind of looks like for you. Is it better to split it? Is it better to is it better to buy one? Like what's the, what what does that look like? And they'll talk a bit about strategy. Then you can get all that free of charge. Just head to dash.com.au forward slash discovery, book it a call. Um, but the point is that you've really, I think people have really got to start pricing, pricing risk in a little bit differently uh, in order to make sure they can offset any potential challenges in the future. So, without any further ado, let's wrap it up. What do you reckon? Awesome. All right, guys. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye.